So I was already interested and, and involved in printmaking kind of more in a fine art sense. I think the thing that appealed to me about letterpress printing, it was a kind of in-between of fine art printing and commercial printing and graphic design. It was sort of all of those things. And it had a real connection to music already. I feel like, you know, back in the early 90s, people were, it wasn't uncommon that people were recording and making all of their own packages um, in some fashion. Um, and I had seen some other people that I didn't really know personally, but had kind of seen these things at record stores. And it just seemed to kind of be a perfect combination of all of those ideas. And you could make millions of dollars doing it. I was like, yes. Welcome to Hello Atelier. I'm your host, Betsy Blodgett, and with me is producer Jonathan Getz. Hello. So, I think it's time for us to confess to our audience that we are addicted to buying prints. I mean, I want a new house just so we would have more wall space and could empty the tubes of posters and waiting, which are begging to be hung. Don't worry. I told our realtor to find us something with at least a thousand square feet, just in corridors. We'll have halls of prints. But yeah, the poster problem is something I think about every time my mind wanders from the computer and onto my jam-packed office walls. Whether it's the ballooning collection of concert prints by Ames Brothers, Wes Anderson prints by Tim Doyle, or others by Hatch Show and E. McKnight Coffer, I want to display them all, and more importantly, I want to have the option to comfortably grow our family of prints. You claim to despise wallpaper, but I know that these prints are a wallpaper you welcome. Well, yeah, they are. Collecting prints is a hobby that can be wildly rewarding when you stumble upon a vibrant screen or letterpress print at a shop or score the last of a limited edition at a concert. You get to revel in the thrill of the hunt. No camo required. Just a credit card. And that is one of the reasons why I often try to stay away from the shop of this week's guest, Brady Best. His store, Hammer Press, is full of letterpress posters and prints, and frankly, I don't have the room for any more wall art. Luckily, he also does greeting cards, and we have loads of room for those. I get a kick out of the giant letterpress machines required to make tiny greeting cards, and I completely understand the letterpress resurgence. The results are prints that are so tactile, you can feel the techniques and machinery required to... Well, let's let Brady explain it. Cue Brady. I started doing things while I was in school um, with people that I knew that were in bands. Um, there was a lot of like other projects too, just kind of more art or writing related, but I wasn't really musical like myself. I mean, I could make noise, but I wasn't ever in bands. And so that was kind of part of that whole collaboration of people making their own music and designing their own packages and making them it was a way to like mass produce something that was artfully made. And so we did a few, I don't know, maybe a half a dozen of those kind of projects um, at the beginning. I've never really looked at it as like a super money making thing. We do get called to do th- occasionally like somebody will see our work and want to do a tour poster for, for instance, or there might be a really big show that somebody has like Wilco, like they have people that are always contracting for poster work where they're doing a show. But I would say the majority of the time, I kind of have gotten comfortable with just being friendly with the promoters and just saying, hey, I want to do a poster for the show. Can I do it? Yeah. I'll give the band, you know, 100 posters and keep this amount. I typically don't really address it like, I want to do this for X amount of dollars because then you have to show... It gets into this client relationship that actually is really difficult to deal with when I make things the way I make because they're pretty much designed on press. Mm-hmm. I have an idea um, and I feel really driven to make it because I like the band and so it's exciting and it, it kind of loses a little bit of its luster if it turns into like a real 
job. So if we're able to make a compromise and say we're going to make this poster really cool and you get some posters that you can sell at the show and then we keep you know, X amount that we sell at 20 bucks a pop until they sell out. So we're not really getting rich off of those people's talents. I don't feel like we've ever taken advantage of that, but that's where it's more fun to me is to like, it's, it's my own kind of project, I guess, as an homage to like the fact that I just dig their music and would want to make a visual, my idea of a visual representation of what that is. Surprisingly, aspiring letterpress designers don't have to go far to find a mentor in the letterpress field. This medium of printing has flourished over the last decade, going from an endangered art to a relatively mainstream technique. However, since Brady was at the forefront of this resurgence, he had to forge his own letterpress community. There were a few guys that that I kind of was inspired by that that started a small press here called Fireproof Press, Um, and it was... Basically, you know, Art Institute grads, there were um, a few people that were in the band The Cocktails that were involved in that printing company. They were in Lady Volkus, and they just had a press and some silk screening stuff. And I think they really got started when they, they were just printing stuff for The Cocktails, which were this really great band. Um, some of those people went on to be in the Sea and Cake and a bunch of Chicago-related bands. But they were just making all of their own stuff, dolls, posters, buttons. But that was really about it. I mean, there were commercial places that did like numbering and die cutting and stuff, but not not kind of in the creative world. So really, that was it. I mean, that's the only thing I knew about at that time here. And then they moved to Chicago. So for a pretty good period of time, it was really just myself doing it, kind of trying to figure out what I was doing. There was always kind of a pretty active, like, book arts letterpress, like, in more old school, like, involved in the book arts and, like, super expensive, like, fine art books, chat books, things like that. Hat show print, of course, was around, which, if you got into letterpress printing at all, you eventually kind of heard of them. That was kind of the beginning of their resurgence, too. They kind of had that period of time where they just, you know, they were just this prep shop doing old stuff, and then there's a guy named Jim Sheradden who runs that that kind of came on board maybe right around that time, a little sooner than that. Uh, he was their historian. I think he kind of was hired maybe to be their archivist and historian. And um, he kind of jump-started that into like being involved with Charles Anderson and uh, Raygun Magazine and different places where you'd see this stuff that looked different, but you didn't quite know what it was. And there were probably more people than that, but you just couldn't find them. I mean, it wasn't really a... Yeah, like now there are websites specifically for finding and selling, buying and selling equipment and Etsy and all of these things that have caused a, a huge resurgence in that and other kind of printing. I didn't really know what I was doing. I mean, I'm sure a lot of it was emulation. You know, you kind of see something that you like that somebody else did and you don't know who that is or if it's old or new. And, you know, it's done in letterpress, so you kind of just sort of look at your stuff and look at their stuff and try to figure out how they did it mm-hmm. and noodle around for a while and make a bunch of really horrible looking things. It, I think it just kind of develops through the materials that you have back there. If you're, if you're doing things with handset type, there's really only, I wouldn't say it's endless possibilities. Like if you're working on the computer, it's like the sky is the limit. Right. Um, so there tends to be a lot of overlap with some aesthetics of you know people that are using the same palette of materials and a lot of times the design really kind of follows like what you have in front of you but eventually I think I just started getting really involved in layering a lot of like 
things and just kind of playing with the way the inks lay over each other fairly sloppily at first but now I feel like I kind of really enjoy this weird like minutia of like just lines and shapes and stuff that overlaps and most of my posters are really hard to read I think sort of intentionally sometimes but it just kind of yeah I think it just developed just by kind of working with those limited things that you had yeah the restraints of just right angles and lead pieces that are there you can't change the size just by clicking a button today hammer press is a multifaceted business that has its own brick and mortar retail space retail website and wholesale division it also works with design agencies on graphic and branding projects this wasn't part of a grand plan of brady's but a natural evolution that occurred as he continued to perfect his craft and diversify his designs you know, it kind of just happened, I wouldn't say accidentally, but like I started doing things at the Art Institute, and then I graduated and had to find some stuff. So I found some stuff, and then I had to find a place. At first, it was really a lot of job work, meaning just you're just printing for other people that are designing things, um, and kind of doing things on the side. We didn't really start designing our own products until about maybe nine years ago, just because I had some people that were involved in the shop that I guess had heard about that, like, you know, just wholesale of cards, and there's a couple trade shows and so we tried it and and that just kind of it probably is the bulk of our business now but I didn't really set out to do that I didn't really have any idea that I would be designing greeting cards at that point I probably thought that that would be really lame I mean it just like it just wasn't in my bubble of thought about what I thought was cool to do that's probably completely short-sighted but um, I thought I was just going to be able to make posters and get rich doing that i'm kidding i knew i wouldn't get to get rich but it just wasn't a viable like that's all you do so you kind of have to mix it up and then eventually you decide you have to store you know move into a building that already kind of has a storefront ish kind of space so you decide to sell your stuff and it just kind of grows from there i mean we've done like some minimal branding for for some some companies a logo you know things like that spin we, that was a collaboration that we did with initially with Willoughby Design Group, and that was a pretty like kind of unfiltered project at first. It just was making a bunch of stuff and then seeing how they could recombine that into what has become their brand. But I would probably give Willoughby that, the credit for that because that was that was kind of their job. We were just invited to be a part of it. But Boulevard, same thing. We kind of go in and work with them with an existing like they have a an aesthetic that they've developed already in labels and things like that. Luckily, we have a relationship with them where we kind of have been, it's probably the chicken or the egg, I don't know if we asked to be involved, if they asked us to be involved at some point, but they give us a pretty wide swath to work in. Like, they want us to do our thing with their thing, um, which is an unusual arrangement. I mean, it's like a fortunate one, but it's not common that you find that kind of client that wants you to take their stuff and kind of just reinvent it. You can't be a letterpress designer with just a paper and pen. You need the actual letterpress equipment, heavy, hulking printing presses, as well as a healthy reserve of print blocks, neither of which you can easily find at your local art store. I would just go into print shops and ask them if they had any old equipment that they were trying to get rid of, and occasionally you would look out. I think the first batch of stuff I got, I was actually visiting... Edmond, where I grew up, and the old newspaper on the kind of old Main Street downtown was coincidentally just talking about what to do with all this crap that they wanted to get rid of. And then in walked like this dumb 
kid, they were like, sure, you can buy all this stuff. And I got a really good deal on it compared to what you would pay now. And so I just started doing that, you know, like going into places and you find like old timers who have warehouses full of stuff. There used to be a guy here in town that he literally had probably cumulatively 40,000 square feet of warehouse space around town that was full of printing equipment. So I would just call him every now and then and go over and bug him and walk around and usually wind up leaving with less cash in my pocket. As Hammer Press's business has grown, so has its need for space. Brady recently relocated to a new, sleek space in a mid-century building on the edge of Kansas City's Crossroads District. As you walk down the stairs to the lower level, you are greeted by a large retail showroom that sells not only Hammer Press products, but also other curated home decor and accessory items. While shopping, customers can see through a glass wall to a studio space reminiscent of a factory floor. Behemoth printing machines not so subtly churn out projects, one stamp at a time. Rustic antique shelves and drawers full of printing blocks surround Brady as he moves from machine to machine. With so many different elements to organize, we wondered how the move affected their creative flow. The honest answer to that question is actually that has been difficult to find that rhythm since we moved. I feel like they're all physical sort of spaces and machines, and every time you move, all of those drawers, they're not labeled wonderfully in alphabetical order, like, you know, you could find it easily in a card catalog. So you have to just kind of retrain yourself and, like, remember. Once you get into, like, kind of, like, have your things here, you know what this is, and you start to, like, get in there, it's it's like anybody else that has a physical space that they work in. You know, you get used to your environment, and it starts to make sense. Since we moved, it has been quite a, a little hard to kind of get that super fluid. It's just weird. You move into a new space, like you move into a new house. A fair amount of time before you like feel like you're in your space. But yeah, once you get cooking, I mean, I feel like I've had like a few projects going at once that they're all hand set type, and you're kind of just grabbing from here, and you're like, all right, I'm working on this now, but I need to rob this from that press and put it over here, and you can get in a rhythm and really start cooking, which is odd to think about when it's all thousands of little pieces that you're trying to like organize. There's some kind of manic activity that can happen in there when you're, you have this idea and you're like, I need that one little quarter inch by quarter inch sun face or these little specific kind of like little flourishes and you, you get a little, like nothing else will do. I have to find like which drawer was that in? And there's 800 drawers. I mean, there's only maybe like 20 that have just ornamentation of them, but you're just like trying to find this one thing and you can really, at some point you have to just stop and say, all right, Maybe it doesn't have to be that exact one, but it can get a little manic back there and obsessive. You know, a drawer, it's like, I don't know, 20 by 30 inches. It can literally have 2,000 pieces in it. I just got it, most of that stuff from some old timer at an auction. It's how he had it. And some of it makes sense and some of it doesn't. Um, but there are pieces that are like, you know, an eighth inch small. It's like when you used to have cassette tapes, like, Say in high school you had like 12 cassette tapes that were unlabeled in the floorboard of your car, but somehow you knew like by the coloration of the label, like, okay, that's the Sonic Youth tape I want to listen to. It's impossible to explain to anybody, but somehow you knew. Like some of the drawers have little personalities. You're like, that's what that's, that's, that's in there. A whole new generation of consumers who prefer to buy handmade have also turned into design enthusiasts that have embraced the letterpress aesthetic. 
allowing not only Hammerpress, but a whole host of other letterpress designers to flourish, re-establishing a once-endangered technique well into the 21st century. A lot of people our age and younger kind of grew up in a different, you know, where that stuff was kind of being brushed aside and kind of trashed. And it may be just as simple as things that are old become new again. I think that's probably part of the reason. I feel like access to those ideas is easier. You know, it's easy for people to share things that are old again and make it new and reinvent it. I feel like maybe the community of kind of people buying local and people wanting to buy things that were made by somebody, they're more tangible now. Like, it's not an abstract idea. It's like it's you go to any city and people are entertaining that idea and supporting it. Um, I don't know if it's just letterpress necessarily. I mean, there are a lot of silkscreen, like people that are making things that feel like they were made by human, whether it's furniture, soap, or candles, or printed stuff. I just feel like, I feel like probably our generation of people when they got to be adults and in, in school and after kind of embraced that in the same way they did with music. People that like to find unusual music that wasn't on the radio kind of was the same thing. We get all sorts of people in here, which is interesting. Like, I don't know, teenagers, college kids, moms. We've always tried to keep some sort of visibility of the shop, like from the store, so it's not completely blocked off and people understand this isn't just a store, you know? It's like kind of these two different things. And I would say that probably people over 50 or 60, whether it's a man or a woman, like tend to like, that looks familiar or that looks old. I remember like my dad did that or, you get a lot of that, which is really interesting, but um, I think just being able to see the back of the house from the front of the house, is, it seems to just spark curiosity. And But I, always, I kind of like that, that we get, like on a Saturday or first Fridays even, um, just like a weird mix of people, like weird in a good way. Just, yeah, I like it that it doesn't seem too hip or elitist or old-timey or... You know, it seems like it's not really any one of those things that hopefully people feel comfortable in here from all over the board. Thanks for listening to this episode of Hello Atelier. To see photos of Brady's work, retail space, and studio, visit helloatelier.org. To keep up with future episodes, subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram.